Hello, this is What's Left of Philosophy. I'm Gil. Here with me today is Will, Owen, and Lillian. Yo. Hey, everyone. Hi. And for today's episode, we're very excited to be joined by a special guest, Dr. Zorn Mao. Hey, Zorn. Thanks for coming on the show. Hey, and thanks so much for inviting me. Sure. Uh, Zorn received his PhD in philosophy from the University of Southern Denmark in 2019 and is currently a postdoctoral fellow in the Department of Philosophy and the History of Ideas at Aarhus University, where he's working on a research project on philosophical anthropology for Marxist political ecology. He is a communist philosopher, a board member of the Danish Society for Marxist Studies, and finally, the author of the book we'll be discussing today, Mute Compulsion, A Marxist Theory of the Economic Power of Capital, published just earlier this year by Verso. So I'll say a few words about the book's project before laying out a couple questions for you, uh, which should hopefully get our discussion off the ground. I think the book is remarkable, not only for its clarity and precision, but for its scope. As the title indicates, its main concern is to articulate a specifically Marxist theory of economic power, about which more in a moment. But ultimately, it does a lot more than that. Among other things, it establishes a kind of philosophical anthropology proper to a Marxist critique of the capitalist mode of production. In so doing, I think it contributes quite productively to the long-standing debate between humanist Marxists and their anti-humanist opponents. Um, very rare for there to be productive contribution to that debate. <laughs> Mao's reading of Marx pays close attention to how his interpretation of diverse theoretical influences evolved over time, which yields unique insights into how Marx's positions changed while he pursued his very broad research program. And lastly, I think the book is impressive for incorporating into a comprehensive, unified theoretical framework insights from an array of recent anti-capitalist critical theories that have, I think, only rarely been brought together. Eco-Marxist and eco-socialist thought, social reproduction theory, the value form theory from the Neue Marx Lecture and more. So in preparation for this episode, we focused on part one of the book, which begins by discussing how power has traditionally been theorized by Marxist thinkers, and then proceeds to elaborate what Mao calls a social ontology, designed to be able to explain the nature of specifically economic power. So that first part concerning power, Mao argues that, for the most part, power has been understood in one of two ways by critical theorists. Power is either exercised in the form of force, outright physical violence, or the threats of that kind of violence, or else in the form of ideology, psychological or affective or cognitive manipulation. While it's true, he says, that these are two genuine forms of power, commonly exercised, and indeed often exercised together in the reproduction of oppressive or dominating social relations, he argues that this framework overlooks that there is a third form of power, economic power, which silently compels people to live and to act in very specific ways, but without being reducible either to physical violence or ideological manipulation. In fact, he suggests that these first two forms of power were those most often exercised for most of human history. But the third is extremely common and if not entirely unique to the modern capitalist mode of production. As for the social ontology, 
Mao proposes, I would suggest that he develops something like a transcendental argument for it. Given that there is such a thing as the exercise of economic power, what must be true ontologically about human beings in order for that exercise to be possible? The social ontology he elaborates involves, perhaps contentiously, a particular notion of human nature, one that makes use of Marx's concept of metabolism, understood as the necessary exchange between human beings and the rest of nature that makes possible their continued existence and survival. This continuous metabolic interchange is a condition for the possibility of the reproduction of human life. And Mao thinks that one of the unique things about human beings, as opposed to non-human natures, is that this metabolic exchange is highly underdetermined. This interchange with nature can take place in a wide variety of different ways. But generally speaking, most human beings today do not have direct access to means of subsistence. And the metabolic exchange that makes their continued existence possible is highly mediated. Economic power, then, is exercised when one party or one group exploits that gap between human life and the metabolic exchange that makes its continuation possible. This is neither physical violence nor ideological manipulation, and yet exerting control over people's access to metabolic processes necessary for survival is undeniably coercive. And a strong case can be made that it is one of the more, if not most, prominent forms of power exercised in a capitalist society such as ours. So there's much more that I could say, but I think that's probably plenty as a sort of introduction or an overview. So Zorin, if I may, I'd like to start out by asking you this. Why did you start thinking about economic power in the first place? Uh, what was it, in other words, that led you to think that that typology of violence and ideology characteristic of so much critical theory, why was that inadequate so that you thought there was need for an account of a different specifically economic form of power? Well, the, the book uh, began as a PhD project. It's a rewritten version of my PhD thesis. And uh, at one point I had this idea that I wanted to try to make some kind of typology of uh, different forms of power in uh, Marx's writings. So I started um, reading uh, through some of uh, Marx's most important writings and and trying to systematically uh, note everywhere he talks about power and, and, and try to make some sort of typology out of that. And um, I think I just found the passages on mute compulsion or uh, the, the impersonal um, forms of power and capitalism really interesting. And at the same time, I was reading a lot of uh, the value form theory, especially the what's called uh, Neue Marx-Lektüre or new, new German reading of Marx. And this form of power is often emphasized by scholars in that tradition, especially uh, Michael Heinrich. Um, so I, I, I found it interesting and I felt like there was still a lot of things to say about that. I felt like there were a, a lot of different scholars that had said something about this form of power and had, had uh, analyzed it from, from certain perspectives, but that there was a need to try to combine these analyses from different traditions and, and combine it also with a more systematic reading of Marx and uh, try to draw insights from, from Marx's writings about this form of power. So that's how I ended up doing this project. 
Yeah. So what I found really fascinating in the work is so we, as Gil covered in his overview, you have you know the type of power that can be um, either physical coercion or at least you know the threat of physical coercion, and then you have the type of power that can you know distort or shape how we we think about the world, how we frame the world, etc. But for you, it seems like you know what distinguishes economic power is that it, it affects you know, the very environment in the conditions under which we, we take social action. And so I was wondering if you could say a bit more about, you know, so this form of economic power, I'm wondering, is it strictly impersonal or is there a personal element to it? So I could see with violence or ideology, it's addressed to a subject, it's addressed to an agent, but it seems you want to talk about, you know, how um, capitalism, you know, shapes, you know, socially our, our possibility for reproduction producing ourselves, et cetera. And yet that economic power, it seems like, you know, agents do exert it or they must exert it in some sort of way, and, you know? And so I'm, I'm, I'm willing to be corrected on this. So I'm wondering, you know, is economic power, is it distinguished because it's impersonal or is there a personal element to it insofar as, you know, agents exert economic power over other agents? That's a, that's a good question. And, uh, and, and, well, I think that first of all, it's one of the reasons why it's impersonal personal is that it's, as you said, it, it, it works by shaping the environment that we live in. So it's, it's, a, it's a form of indirect power, which is uh, one of the reasons why it's, its expressions can usually not be attributed to a or traced back to a specific person. A lot of the ways in which economic power works, for example, by market movements, uh, price, the price mechanism, uh, is an example of of how this form of power is impersonal because because it's a it's an outcome it's an outcome of the actions of a lot of different actors, individuals and 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 companies and and so on. So mm-hmm. that's one of the reasons why it's impersonal. But it can, in a certain sense, take on the appearance of a personal form of power, especially within the workplace. So impersonal market pressures will, for example, uh, force capitalists to do certain things within the labor process, within the workplace. For example, change the labor process in a certain way, organize the workplace in a new way and and introduce new technologies and so on and exercise power in a way that's very concrete and also seem personal because within the workplace, you can actually Often, usually, you can point to a specific person who asks you to do something. But I think it's important to to see how this is actually not, this does not mean that it's a personal form of power because those concrete exercises of power within the workplace are actually, at least to a certain degree, an expression, a mediated expression of the impersonal pressures of the market because the capitalist is also subjected to the power of capital because the capitalist has to respond to uh, to competitive pressures. So even in its most personal expressions, I still think that it makes sense to speak of this as an impersonal form of power. Yeah, just uh, like filling in that impersonal like economic power a little more, you give examples from the kind of built environment, right? You say even like infrastructure, digital infrastructure, highways, ports, uh, all these different uh, things also play an important role in exerting um, mute compulsion, right? Economic power. I was wondering if you could just say a little bit more like about 
the role of the built environment. I'm just curious. I love this idea. So I'm curious how you got there too. Uh, and the, and the power that is exerted by the built environment and capitalism. Yeah, it's well, in a, in a, in a sense, it's a very simple idea because it's, it's quite obvious that if you, that if you construct a new highway or a new port or something like that, uh, something that makes capitalist companies more mobile, something that makes it easier to move production from one place to another, mm -hmm. to relocate production, for example. That's obviously That obviously means that a company that is able to relocate production more easily, it gains an advantage in struggles with not only with its own employees, but also with the state, for example, also if if a, a government wants to regulate the economy or something like that, or uh, uh, raise taxes or whatever, so mobility is a source of power for for capitalist companies, which uh, means then that everything that makes capital more mobile strengthens the power of capital. So in that way, in certain infrastructure projects can be a way of uh, strengthening the power of capital. And, and, and I don't think it makes sense to, to, to talk about that as an example of violence, for example, because it's the power that a company gets relative to its workers or to a local government by means of infrastructure projects cannot really be understood as, as, as a form of violence, I think. Although violence can be necessary, for example, to ev evict people from uh, you know, from, from land where uh, a highway has to be built or mm -hmm. something like that. But it's not in itself, I think, a form of violence. Mm -hmm. and, I, and I also don't think it makes sense to, to think of it as a, as a form of ideological power. So that's, that's an example of where I felt like there was a need for a, a more systematic concept of a third form of power that functions by reshaping the environment and that strengthens the power of capital. So... Mm. That's how that works, I think. Hmm. I just wanted to say, I think that the the logistics revolution that has taken place since the 1970s and 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 the way that the way in which globalization has been accelerated by uh, infrastructure projects and and uh, and transport technologies in the last couple of decades are an extremely important basis for the power of capital today. I think so. I think that's a re it's a really important aspect of the power of capital today. So actually, as you're saying this, you know, I feel like I have two insights. I thought, you know, what you were saying about the infrastructure is actually really helpful because all of a sudden I started thinking in my head, why something like struggles over more walkable cities are about more than simply, it'd be nice if I could just, you know, not have to like get in a car to go to a grocery <laughs> store. It's also actually a debate about, so what is infrastructure for? What is infrastructure mm -hmm. meant to be conducive for? And so one might think if, you know, roads and, and highways, you know, um, are conducive to a type of power for capital to be mobile, you could see why trying to alter our background environment to, you know, make more space for people walking rather than huge trucks, that might not necessarily be in the interest of, you know, capital writ large. But, you know, because this is like a, a background environment, is talking about, so what types of choices and capacities are, are encouraged and what types of choices and capacities are limited or, or, or discouraged? And so, you know, that was one insight. And I thought that that was actually a really 
really interesting way of trying to think about economic power in a way that's different than, say, violence or ideology. Um, the second insight, and um, I'll just say this quickly because I've already spoken once, is you know, someone might respond, well, when cities create these huge highways that cut through like you know, racial neighborhoods, they might want to call that violence. But I guess from what you're saying is something like this. Violence might be instrumental to setting up the, the highway, but the highway itself, we should be able to describe what it's doing. And what it's doing isn't simply, you know, sort of like, you know, violating these people's freedoms. It is also altering the very background environment, very, you know, the way that we think about or enact mobility. And so I wonder, like, you know, you could respond to people saying, yeah, and you say this clearly, Violence and ide ideology are necessary components of capitalism, but that doesn't mean that something like highways and ports are reducible to violence and ideology. The state might use violence, but the, the highway mm -hmm. itself, what it's doing, well, we need a different concept to describe that. And so I thought that that was you know, very – the way that I say that, did that make sense? Does that seem to accord with what, what you're thinking there? Because I, I imagine what the, the abstraction of the project is, is not to say that there are moments where there is only economic power power and never violence or ideology, but that's useful to be able to depict what it is that these different forms of power are doing. Yeah, I, I totally agree with everything you said. And uh, and I want to uh, emphasize that I, I, yeah, as you said, I think that violence and ideology are necessary forms of power in capitalism. I think they are always there. They constantly, ex they exist all the time. It's not like you can find situations where there's not, where these forms of power are uh, totally absent in any way. So my project has nothing to do with uh, trying to say that uh, violence and ideology are less important than anyone has uh, said that they are. My project is more about saying that in addition to these forms of power, there's there's even more to the power of capital than that. And I also want to emphasize that in, in my book, I, I focus exclusively on economic power, but that's an analytical abstraction. That's because I wanted to try to build a theory of this form of power, but in you know, the way this form of power works in reality, it's always combined with other forms of power. And I don't think that there's any simple relationship between them. I don't think that one of them is more fundamental than the others or anything like that. I think that violence can function as a basis for uh, economic power, but it can also work the other way around. I think they can strengthen each other in many different ways. So I don't, I don't think that there are any like simple uh, relationship between these three forms of power. So I do have a question about some of the back and forth you do in the book, if I recall correctly, with post-structuralist thinking about power. There's this kind of like little, like delicate little song and dance that you that you can do with this tradition. And I was thinking while I was reading it that on the one hand, I, I feel that Marxists have on the on the whole felt pretty misunderstood by the way that that tradition has characterized structural power, but has basically not been able to articulate itself philosophically. And I do think there's like a way in which Marxist historiographers and historians have been able to do this a little bit better, but in philosophy, it's not really something that has emerged. And, you know, in the same way that like Freudians have always felt a bit misunderstood that their idea of power is merely repressive, you know, Marxists have generally been told that they have a simplistic dyad dyadic theory of repressive power and so on and so forth. And it kind of just occurred to me that like, you know, part of the problem is, is that structural power 
can be productive as well. You know, it's not actually only repressive. And that a lot of the dilemmas, I mean, I'm just wondering if this is a fair way of summing up the way that you kind of handle that that set of objections is that a structural form of power doesn't need to be purely repressive. Like the prim- the things that make it structural are productive things in the same way other forms of power are productive. Would that be fair or did you have something else in mind? No, I think that's, I think I would agree with that. Yeah, I think that's a that's a good way of of saying it. Yes. So one way of um, getting at this sort of question that I think Lillian's trying to ask is, we I, I think the four of us have a kind of a bit of a contentious relationship with Foucault, for instance, right? And <laughs> uh, maybe more so with Foucault, certain Foucaultians, where there's a very sort of dismissive attitude that you sometimes encounter when it comes to questions about capitalism or of capitalist power as being, I don't know, um, this is unsophisticated. It's not attentive enough to the the way in which like power is actually productive and generative, which a good Foucauldian analysis understands properly, but a Marxist doesn't get, right? Your book has a really interesting kind of way of making Foucault and Marx talk to each other in a generative way, I think in a productive way. So maybe could you talk a little bit about how you mobilize concepts like biopower or biopolitics, like as a as a Marxist theoretician? These don't always go together so nicely, but I think they do in your work. And I was wondering if you could talk about that. Sure. I think that Foucault, I think his concept of biopower and biopolitics can be quite useful. I think he I think some of the historical tendencies he tries to describe with that concept. He's definitely onto something there uh, about how there's a change in the way in which the state relates to its population. But I just I just think that there, there are also certain limits to his analysis because there are certain things he don't really want to talk about because of, I think, his polemical relationship with Marxism. Mm-hmm. Which is then another question, uh, you know, why, why, why did he have this polemical relationship to Marxism? And um, I think there are good reasons for that and there are bad reasons for that. But um, in any case, I think uh, his reluctance to speak about property relations, for example, his, his reluctance to speak about changes in property relations and, and capitalist uh, property relations means that Foucault registers some historical changes that he can't really he, he provides a description of them, but he can't really explain them. And I think that basically we can just combine some of these analyses with a Marxist understanding of capitalism and then create a better analysis of this historical development. And, I'm, and I should also say that I'm not at all the first to uh, suggest that. I think one of, for example, one of the Marxists who have um, suggested this is uh, Silvia Federici in Caliban and the Witch. And um, she makes the exact same point there. Um, I also discuss Foucault's work in other ways in the book, uh, especially his, his, his concept of power and how that relates to a Marxist concept of power. And I, I think that generally, I think that there's a lot of un, not, not very fruitful polemics between Marxist and Foucauldians. Um, and it, I think from both sides, actually. You know, I'm not suggesting that there aren't any conflicts and that, you know, that it's just that there could be like total harmony uh, between Foucault and Marx. But I'm just I'm more interested in trying to find out how we can actually 
do something interesting by combining their insights rather than you know trying to uh, put them in in different corners. Yeah, one thing I just on this point that I really like that you do in your discussion of Foucault is you say you know there is mu- there is much to be learned from these kind of what Foucault calls those kind of micro analyses of power or whatever, looking almost at the infinitesimal aspects of the way power is exerted in like the built environment too, right? In, in factories and schools and um, in prisons, et cetera. But you say at one point, Foucault cannot explain like why people are showing up to the factory or why is there, you don't give this example, but why is there a huge surplus population of people being incarcerated? And what, what is the macro context with, what are the macro forces being exerted Right, the kind of power that is being exerted that is shaping the way that these more localized institutions are functioning. Um, I think that's like a really, really good point. Um, and going back to my earlier point, do you see do you see something like a mute compulsion being exerted by some of those institutions that Foucault analyzed? I know I don't want to turn this into a whole conversation about Foucault, but I, I guess I'm trying to fill in like where all, all of the different sites at which this mute compulsion is being exerted. You have the in, you have infrastructure, you have the market, you have digital infrastructure, all these different things. And is that one of the places you see a kind of cross a fruitful crossover? And um, you see something like a I don't know, mute compulsion. It's not really about the Foucault. I don't really care about in, the influence part of it. Um, it's more about I don't know, you're filling in the picture of of economic power. Yeah, I think that that you know, if we want to talk about the different institutions that Foucault often focuses on, then the, well, the factory is obvious, mm-hmm. and and um, Foucault also makes this connection himself. Uh, but but um, between Marx's analysis of factory and when Foucault talks about uh, factory discipline and power in, in in the factory, that's one of the places where he recognizes Marx for his, for his analyses. Um, you could also probably you know, the educational system, schools and, and so on would also be an institution where you could uh, see the effects of economic power because of the way in which the pressures of the labor market, for example, influences how uh, education is organized. I guess it's a bit difficult to, it's a difficult question to try to like think of right now about how how you can see the effects of economic power in the psychiatric institutions, for example, and, and all of the different institutional settings that Foucault analyzed. There's definitely more work to be done there. So I think that this is a, a, a good place you know, after you know, like kind of filling out what economic power is to go to how Gill put it, the transcendental question of, well, what makes economic power possible? And this is where I thought what I found is I think people find that this is the, the contentious part of the book. But I, I really like this philosophical anthropology that, that you're engaging in. What you do is, you know, just to quickly summarize is you look at, you know, the human body. And so that, you know, the human body, instead of some sort of original unity, we are deeply needy creatures. You know, and our, you know, development, our survival requires that we engage with tools that cannot simply just be found in the organic complex of our lungs, livers, etc., in order to not only produce ourselves, but to develop ourselves. So there is, you know, I think the way you put it is an original cleavage. 
So I was wondering if you could say a bit more about what the role this philosophical anthropology is in you, know, you saying this is what makes economic power possible. And when you answer that, I, I guess I have a follow-up question. From a Marxist perspective, if it is the case that you know, economic power under capitalist arrangements is basically the tools that we need to survive, and you can think of tools like a hammer, not to make you all think about Heidegger, or you can think of tools as you know, institutions that we need in order to develop that you know, under capitalism, that we are separated from these tools. It's not simply up to us to simply say, that tool is mine, I'll use it however I will, that we actually have, we are mediated by these market processes, state processes, et cetera to get to these tools that are necessary because the human creature is needy, incomplete, disunified. From a Marxist perspective, is it we're supposed to, uh, supposed to, you know, fill in whatever you want, the goal is to get beyond economic power or is the goal to shape economic power in uh, that is more conducive to ends of justice, ends of humanity. I'll let you fill that in because you also have this really nice back and forth with you know, the problem of the sort of romantic conception of human nature. But you know, I, I, you know, I don't want us to miss like talking about this anthropology you do of the human body because we are incomplete, because we are needy. That's how economic power can take root in our lives. If we truly were autonomous and independent, what you're describing as economic power, I, you know, it would be hard to see how it could get its hooks into our social life. So there, there, there are some really good questions here. Um, let me start by the, the question of whether or not we should aim for uh, or try to get rid of economic power or change it and make it work in a different way. I think economic power is an expression of the unique human capacity to inscribe social relations in our material surroundings. And in capitalist society, that ability that human capacity has been used to create a system of domination. We obviously want to get rid of domination, but so if we understand economic power as economic domination, then I would say that uh, economic power is something that we can and should get rid of. But uh, if we if we understand economic power in a broader sense as the as the capacity to as I said, the capacity to externalize social relations in our surroundings, then we could also maybe imagine how we could actually create a material environment that would tend to reproduce social relations of equality rather than dominations for, domination, for example. I don't think it, it would make sense to try to um, get rid of that capacity or to do that, that you know, uh, uh, externalizing social relations in our material environment. That's that's what we do as human beings. Uh, so uh, what we should aim for is to create a society in which that capacity is used to make sure that domination does not exist and that it keeps being that way. So it's it's really interesting, I think, to, to think about how we could uh, use that capacity to create a society which would be like a form of democratic resilience to use that capacity to create a society where domination would not be possible. So I also think that economic power in that sense, power in a broad sense where it's, it's not only domination, it could also be a legitimate form of power, a democratic form of power, an expression of, of collective decision-making or something like that. 
Something I really liked about the book was the sort of transition from these anthropological claims to the set of arguments about dependency. I thought there was a nice set of bits of social theorizing that were usually are usually kind of disaggregated but came together really nicely in the book. And I'm just wondering, because you start using the language of dependency based on this way of talking about human beings, this language of dependency is, you know, I think it's like normatively suggestive. And I think that given the kind of the, the way that you try to work with other people in the book who are worried about dependency, like feminist theorists and so on, there's like, there's, you know, it seems to me that there's like ingredients there to start talking about domination in a particular way. And I'm just wondering how you thought about yourself doing that, like how to make the jump to the the normative argument, because it seems to me that that would have some bearing on the argument about the alternative social arrangement, because you would mm-hmm. you would want to have, you know, better forms of dependence dependency instead of forms that are for the worse. I'm I'm not sure actually I I understand what you mean about the what the, the you know the norm you said the normative argument. Domination is the normative argument, no? So I was just assuming, so um, you can tell me if I'm wrong about that. I just, when I start hearing domination, I hear a normative claim about like why it's bad and that this form of economic power is a, a form of domination. And I was just wondering how, given the way you characterize this form of power, and it seems like dependency plays some role in that, that you might develop some way of saying that this form of dependency is bad for for so and such and such reasons and i suppose that argument seems like it just comes out organically if you're inclined to agree i mean i think like the five of us here probably would automatically start using the language of domination but maybe for somebody who's not so convinced you know that like structural domination is a thing it might be a way of making that convincing thanks i um I'm actually not sure I think that there's any normative claims involved in that uh, or uh, judgment in in that sense I, because I'm I think when I speak about domination I usually mean the absence of freedom so in a sense when I conclude that the power of capital is a form of domination I basically just mean that it prevents people from doing certain things it prevents people from doing what they want it forces people to do something to act in a specific way and that's why i describe it as domination but that that does not necessarily mean that you in principle it would be it would be possible to say well yes and that's fine i like that <laughs> um, so so i would say that uh, I, I try to show that uh, or i argue that if you want a society with as much freedom as possible, you would have to be an anti-capitalist. But I don't really justify, you know, that I want that. So the normative standpoint is actually the starting point. Uh, And I don't really try to come up with any systematic arguments for that, uh, actually. Yeah. Does that make sense? No, it it does. Yeah, no, it does make sense. Thanks. That's interesting because, you know, normally 
when well, I don't know if it's normally, but often when philosophers engage in philosophical anthropology, it's with like a clear normative view in mind, right? I mean, Hobbes is the most famous example of this. Like, this is what humans are like, and so this is what like the state or the political social form or political form uh, has to look like. I find it really interesting that in your debates with other Marxists, you want to hold on to a conception of human nature. So you disagree with the anti-humanists about this. Like, you think the, a conception of human nature is very illuminating. And yet you want to prohibit that conception of human nature from working as a foundation for a normative vision. Like there's nothing about what humans are like that tells us exactly what, you know, what's the right natural social form or economic form or political structure to live under. And so I guess that's why I did wonder, though. Yeah. So that helps clarify it for me, because you're just saying that, look, there's a normative starting point for the project. And I don't want to use the anthropology to do normative work. You're using the anthropology to do explanatory work, right? To explain how economic power is able to exert in the first place all of this um, power over us. I wanted to ask also about, I'm not sure I fully buy that there is no normative elements kind of just moving through the work. I mean, there is, I don't know, maybe you could just say a little bit more about the, about wh like wh what role, if any, you do see that normativity playing. I mean, uh, you are a communist, and there's an extent to which, like you, there is a sense throughout the book that this is bad, that it's restrictive, that it's you know that the that mute compulsion of our conduct and of our lives is is awful, you know, and that it's that it kills the infinity of human freedom and tries to trap it in a, like a you know a very restrictive set of social structures and social forms. So, I don't know, maybe I just wanted to hear a little more but about to push a little bit more on the on the norm the presence of some kind of normative argument in the in the book. It's definitely an interesting discussion. I I think that um there is certainly a lot of uh, normative normativity in the book. And it's uh it's written from a uh, you know, I I I'm, I don't try to I do not try to hide in any way my political standpoint or, uh, you know, what my normative, uh, but 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 my my position. But I don't think that there are any that there, there's not a lot of normative arguments. And in a certain sense, I'm not that occupied with. I don't think it's that important to provide good arguments for why capitalism is bad. For example, I think if if I, I think that it's it's more uh, you know it's it, it's important to understand how capitalism works. It can be help it can be helpful for, uh, in trying to um, you know in 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 struggles against capitalism to understand how it works. And then uh, it's also uh, in addition to that, it's also important to discuss how do we um, you know how do we uh, create more support for the anti-capitalist cause, or and and how do we convince people that capitalism is something that should be abolished? Um, but that that's not the same thing as you know giving philosophical arguments about why it's bad in mm -hmm. in in the, in the way that, uh, for example, that normative political philosophy usually does. Um, I, I I just don't really see why it's important actually to come up with those arguments because I think it's 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 obvious that it's obvious that capitalism is bad. It's 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 bad for nature. It's bad for human beings. It it it, it creates suffering and it's a it it takes it it relies on domination and it takes away uh, our freedom. 
and and so I I, I basically and uh, well I'm not sure how to express this I just don't I just don't think that those kind of moral philosophical m moral arguments about um, you know trying to justify our trying to justify our um, being anti-capitalists uh, with uh, by means of arguments is not I'm not sure it's that important. I'm more interested in trying to understand how it works and to think about how to convince other people. And of course, that can convincing other people about uh, that it's uh, it would be a good idea to abolish capitalism can also sometimes be about coming up with good arguments, moral arguments for why it's bad. But it can also be a, about a lot of that's that's more like a strategical perspective. Strategic perspective: how do we how do we Get more support for this political struggle, then it's a, it's a then it's a moral question about finding the right uh, arguments. Um, and in a sense, that the, the the philosophical anthropology, what one of the conclusions I think of the philosophical anthropology I, I uh, present in the book is that, as you said, um, the human nature does not imply any. Uh, specific form of society. And we cannot criticize any uh, particular form of society by reference to human nature. What, what uh, human nature, what the concept of human nature does is to show uh, in a sense that there's no uh, basis for that, that the human being is a political animal all the way or through and through in, in the sense that there's no, there's no basis, there's no natural basis for, uh, you know, for for there's only there's only struggle. There's only there's only a choice of you know whose side are you on. I think there's a problem with my internet connection, maybe. Press record again. Yeah. Yeah. Hit record again and let it keep going, and I'll I'll, I'll yeah. fix yeah, Jill, it. Jill's a magician. He'll okay. uh, he'll fix yeah. it. My only job on Wednesday is to make this make sense. So, all right. Okay. So where where were we? So <laughs> so yeah. So we were just we just had some connectivity issues. Yeah, we were talking about normativity. You were answering normativity a question and about connectivity. The, yeah. Right. Normativity, connectivity, and the role of like human nature. Like, what is what is this philosophical anthropology doing? Given that you both want to say. Right. Maybe this is what. Maybe we could get into it like this. Why do you think that like Marxist theory? ought to have Marxist critical theory ought to retain a concept of human nature, given that we're a trying to avoid like romantic humanism or humanist romanticism and B you don't want it to do like this normative, like grounding work for the critical, uh, for the critical question. Like, so, so why hold on to human nature at all? I'm actually not sure that I can give a good answer to that question because the part of my book where I discuss this, which is the first part of the book is I would say actually not strictly necessary for the rest of the book. The chapters on philosophical anthropology and the human nature and stuff like that, what they do is that they explain why such a thing as economic power is possible. Mm. What it is about human being that makes this form of power possible. But that's actually not really necessary in order to say how this, what this power is and how it works. In order to uh, make a theory of that form of power, it's not necessary to understand why it's possible. 
I just think it was an interesting, and, and I uh, feel like it gives us a better understanding of what economic power is. But actually, often when I present the book at talks, for example, I, and, and the, the main arguments of the book, I usually skip that part and just go directly to the analysis of what is this form of power and how does it work in capitalism. I think one, maybe one useful uh, thing about it is that it it can, I hope, provide an argument against using a concept of human nature as a normative basis of criticizing certain forms of, of society or as a support for a certain form of society. I think that there, there are certain dangers in doing that or certain unfortunate things about doing that or um, uh, certain pitfalls uh, that we can avoid by means of uh, the analysis of human nature that I present there. So by holding on to that concept of human nature as human being as a biologically underdetermined animal whose relationship to the rest of nature does not imply a certain form of society that can be used to criticize what I would say is actually a form of depoliticization to uh, criticize or to defend certain uh, forms of society with reference to human nature. I think it's a form of depoliticization because it basically tries to criticize or defend a particular social formation with reference to a pre-political fact of nature. Okay. So you know what's really interesting about what you're doing, especially with that explanation you gave, you gave? Basically, what you're doing is you gave us a picture of human nature in order to take it away from us <laughs> as a source for political critique, which I think is actually a very fascinating move. You know, you know, the, the easier way perhaps would have been to say, let's just not talk about human nature, but you've set up, you know, your account, the philosophical anthropology of human nature in such a way that if you buy it, you would be convinced most likely that it cannot be the basis for either saying, here's how society should be, or capitalism mutilated some prior unity. So I just wanted to call that and say that that's actually a fascinating philosophical move. You give with one hand and take with the other. <laughs> and I think, yeah, he's goaded, as they say. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I, I take it from, you know, this account of human nature is basically to say something like, you know, you focus a lot on this notion of metabolism and all mm -hmm. that. There will be a metabolism between human life and natural life. And so the question is, can we explain what structure or what patterns that met, that metabolism takes? And that is a political question. But it seems like you know, what might be controversial about your account of economic power, I don't know how controversial. It does seem to have a firm basis in Marx, and I think it makes a lot of sense, is that economic power is not simply one class of people bear the brunt of economic power and another class of people simply exert economic power. But it's important, I, I think, maybe for our listeners to hear is that you think all agents in the social metabolism are submitted or subsumed under economic power. Um, I was wondering if you could say a bit more, basically, you know, not to be too too jargony, even capitalists are subsumed by economic power. Yeah. It seems you don't think they wield economic power strictly against the proletariat or the working class. So I was wondering if you could just say a bit more about why you think it's useful to be able to explain economic power as something that, you know, subsumes, you know, all of our uh, metabolism, rather than it being something like, say, violence, A hits B, or ideology, I tricks C. You know, what, what is the importance of the sort of universality to economic power, or generality, maybe? Yeah, I think it has consequences about how we think of what the solution is to the problem of capitalism. Because 
let me start by saying that the economic power of capital consists of a lot of different mechanisms of domination that together reproduce capitalism. Some of these mechanisms are forms of class domination. So the some of these power mechanisms are mechanisms where one class is dominated by another, where proletarians are dominated by capitalists uh, or workers by uh, capitalists, uh, workers in a more narrow sense of wage laborers who are dominated in the workplace by capitalists. But other of the mechanisms of the economic power of capital are mechanisms that everyone is subjected to. The best example is probably competition as a power mechanism. I argue that competition is a is a mechanism of domination because it's a mechanism that tends to reproduce capital. It's it's one of the ways in which an important way in which the logic of capital is realized by means of a lot of different market agents that forces this logic upon each other. And competition is obviously something that it can it can't be understood as a form of class domination. Competition is a relationship between sellers, between market agents, between, between people who sell the same thing in the market, whether or not they're selling labor power as workers do or capitalists who sell commodities. So competition is something that affects all market agents, uh, regardless of their class position. At the same time, however, because it, capitalism is also a class system, it affects, even though it affects everyone, it affects people differently depending on where they are in that system. So. So I just, you know, I don't want to reduce any of these to each other. I, I, I think it's important to see how both of these uh, dimensions are there at the same time and that they strengthen and mediate each other. And one of the reasons why I think it's important to emphasize that the power of capital also consists of mechanisms that everyone is subjected to is that it helps us avoid a certain form of moralistic critique of capitalism, which would see the problem with capitalism as a problem of greedy individuals or something like that. It's it's one of the advantages of focusing on competitive pressures, for example, and and, and to, to, to highlight the importance of that form of power is that it makes it very clear how you know, the, the solution can never be just to find another and better boss, another and better capitalism who could, who's more concerned with, with the well-being of uh, their workers or, uh, you know, nature or the climate or anything like that. It's, mm-hmm. it, 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 it's a structural problem. It's a problem built into the fundamental economic structure of capitalism. And I think that's what the analysis of the universal forms of power in capitalism highlights. Yeah, you use the distinction in the book between like vertical power, power that's exercised vertically, and then the economic power, which is horizontal, right? The vertical is the hierarchical relationship between exploiters and exploited, right? A a more, I think, conventionally understood kind of class antagonism or class relationship. And then the horizontals, those, those elements of power that encompass everybody within a capitalist system and every position within a capitalist system and exerts power. Um, on all those positions. On that point, I guess I was curious, and maybe you don't don't spend too much time working in this direction, but maybe towards the end of our talk, it might be interesting to ask a bit about it. The conception of antagonism in a vertical notion of economic power makes sense. I mean, you want to organize, like labor should organize in opposition to capitalists, so that they should try to cultivate an antagonistic relationship, a struggle, like against a another particular class, like within 
within society. But when you look at the the horizontal notion of power, the kind of power that is, is being exerted on all of us, which is much more impersonal, much less easy to kind of locate. What does struggle against that, you know, against this like totally impersonal network of power, what might that look like? I mean, the first things that come to my mind are the kinds of actions that like sabotage circulation and sabotage like whatever, you know, pipelines and highways or whatever, right? That there's a kind of sabotage like politics, I think, implied by preventing, especially those elements of the built environment from working to the advantage of capitalists. But that's just one thing that comes to mind. I'm wondering just what you think of how you picture, if you do it all, what it looks like to antagonize economic power in that big horizontal sense, the what it looks like to struggle against it, because it's a very different picture that I think it's, I think, by the way, that that's like a fair and I think a very useful way to examine the way economic power functions. I just wonder about what struggle looks like, given that it's so much more diffuse than the vertical power struggle, right? Between workers at the bottom and capitalists at the top. Um, I think actually that, 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 you know, we can distinguish between the vertical and the horizontal relations of production and capitalism and uh, vertical and horizontal dimensions of the power of capital analytically, we can abstract them from each other. Mm -hmm. I think that in struggles against them, I don't think it makes sense to think of struggles as something that is either directed against one or the other or these two sets of uh, relations or these mm -hmm. two sets of mechanisms of dominations. One of the important conclusions of, of my discussion of the relationship between the vertical and the horizontal, uh, which was, I think, probably the most difficult part of the book to write. I think that trying to describe exactly how these two dimensions are related. One of the important conclusions in that part of the book is that the horizontal relationship between units of production or between members of the same class, uh, between market agents in capitalism, presuppose class relations, presuppose a class antagonism. Put differently, the the a market economy, an economy where production is organized by means of private and independent producers who exchange their products as commodities and where production is organized by means of a market presupposes an, a situation where a large part of the population is proletarianized, which actually means that, uh, you know, one of the ways to or the way to undermine the horizontal mechanisms of domination would be to abolish class and, and to reappropriate the, the conditions of uh, social reproduction. So in that way, I think that these two dimensions are at the level of political struggle too closely connected to separate them. It doesn't really make sense, I think, to speak of, uh, you know, some struggle to say that some struggles are directed against the vertical do uh, mm -hmm. relations of dominations and, and other struggles against the, the horizontal. That's really helpful. Yeah, I think that does it for us today. So we'd once again like to thank uh, Dr. Zoran Mao for joining us. Uh, Zoran, would you like to tell our audience about where they can find you, say, online, or if you've got anything coming up that you'd like to share? Uh, well, yeah, I, I have. Uh, well, one thing I have coming up uh, is a small article about communism uh, that will be published soon, where I try to actually try to describe what a how a communist society could look and, and how a communist mode of production might work. Just a few ideas in a couple of pages. So that's one thing that's coming up. And and uh, yeah, if 
any, anyone wants to follow my work, I have a, I have a website you can follow and uh, that's probably the easiest way. I think that's it. Yeah. Cool. Great. Well, we'll definitely share a link to that website in the episode description. New episodes of What's Left of Philosophy come out every two weeks wherever you get your podcasts. Also check us out on YouTube for videos and live streams. Before closing out today, we'd like to take a moment to thank some of the people who are supporting the show on Patreon. We couldn't do this without you and we're very grateful. Today's new patrons are David Moon, Tarang Saluja, Stephen Malley, Paula Weinman, Jabuli Mikkel-Mulefe, Sayanak, Luis Sotillo, TM Srirat Chachu, Antoine Pfeiffer, Nikolai Levnikov, A.G., Simone Harris, Tim Schmeidel, Petra Lawson, Praveen, Ruben Gonzalez-Lope, Harvey Cooper, Dylan Marshall, Robert Raymer, Will Yate, Sam Smucker, Jonathan Zorn, and Thoughts of Knox. Thank you all very much. If you too like what we're doing and want to support the show, please go to our website, leftofphilosophy.com, and click the support button. Patrons get access to exclusive content like locked episodes and bonus videos, and access to our Discord server. In addition, you can support us by buying some What's Left of Philosophy merch, which you can also find through our website. Follow us on Twitter at Left of Phil, and don't forget to leave us good reviews and comments on your podcast app. With that, thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next time. Thanks, Lauren. That was great. Bye. Bye. Thank you. <laughs>